Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Well, hello everybody. Welcome. Are you like me? The body is cold, but the heart is warm. Um, I hope so. Um, hi, uh, just to say hi everybody, it's really great to see you. My name is Howard. I'm the pastor here at Westminster Chapel. Sorry, oh I did that wrong. I'm the pastor here at Westminster Chapel. You'll be doing this as well, you know, come on. Westminster, like the bridges, chapel, ringing a bell. Uh, and everyone is welcome here. It's not bad. How did you like that? No. <laughs> Amanda's like, he's getting better slowly. <laughs> um, yeah, we're a life-giving church for all sorts of shapes, colors, and sizes. We generally are welcome if you're watching online, in person. Again, sorry about kind of all of the challenges this morning. Just kind of have a little fidget around, stuff like that. Um, I'm sure you'll stay warm enough. Um, we're going to be reading from John chapter 1. Um, I'm going to read that to you. You might want to open the Bible. We're starting a new series. It's the Bible. The Bible, if you don't know, has been called by a leading historian as history's most influential book. That means that basically whether you're a Christian or not, you need to read it. Um, otherwise, you don't know about this amazing influence of history that on history the Bible has had. And we're going to be looking at the Bible in 12 verses, which is pretty phenomenal. The first of those will be John chapter 1 and verse 1. And I'm going to read to you the first five verses of this first century biography about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not become it. Just take a moment just to, just to pray. Lord, we just want to invite your Holy Spirit to come right now and make your word alive, living, and active. We ask this in your holy and mighty name. Amen. Be great. I just wonder whether we could, is it possible to keep the doors closed at the back? That would be such a blessing to me as I'm speaking and I'm sure the people in the room. So if someone can just call that, that would be fantastic. If you are in that back room, I'm really sorry. We can hear what you're saying. Um, it's awkward. So just yeah, bear that in mind. Um, great. So in this new series, it's called The Bible. The Bible in 12 verses. Um, it's going to be phenomenal. It is the ultimate invitation to uh, deep meaning, real acceptance, true purpose. And I want to open it by asking you a question. Have you ever watched a film that has a bad storyline? 
Have you ever done that? Yeah, some of you sniggering. Yeah, I've done that. Some of you are better at choosing maybe the bad films than the good films. You know who you are. <laughs> a, a, a bad storyline. Well, according to the film review website, Rotten Tomatoes, um, the worst film when I was looking that they believe has ever been made is called Ballistic. Scored just 18% on their scales. And this is what the critics said about it. It is a startlingly inept film, overblown wall-to-wall -wall action without a hint of wit, coherence, style, or originality. I had the most amazing PowerPoint slide with that on, by the way, just, just so that you could appreciate that. I even made them myself this week. I thought they were like the best slides that have ever been made. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, they weren't. But just imagine that, that that was there with a little poster of the movie Ballistic. It's a bad film, but it had loads of money. Millions and millions of pounds were spent on this film. Had top-rate actors, you know, one done quite well for themselves. It had special effects, it had CGI graphics, it had the whole works, but they could not. All that stuff could do nothing to remedy a really bad story. Now, there's a point here about life. If you're living the wrong story, a less good story, it doesn't matter about what power, money, success, all the stuff that you chase after that you might try and boost the story. I'm sorry, it just isn't going to work. Now let's take the reverse for a moment. Let's take the reverse idea here. Have you ever watched a film or been in the theater, a musical maybe, and it was amazing? You were transported into another world and it was glorious and it was joyful and you felt ecstatic and amazing. You were living in that space and it was wonderful. And then the credits rolled and the curtain closed and you were gutted. Oh no, I have to go back to the real world and live a normal life. That was amazing. I want that life. But what if everything that was good and everything that was true that you just watched could be yours? What if you could really live in the best aspects of that story? And in a story that's only part one and the sequel's going to be even better. That's the invitation of this series. That's why we're doing this series. It's about meaning, purpose, acceptance for sure. Absolutely. It's about really knowing your Bible and knowing where you, how do you navigate the, the, the whole of the scriptures. 66 books written by more than 40 authors over 1,500 years, but telling one consistent story. How do you read it? How do you get, get the most out of it? So it's not just like going to McDonald's for fast food, but it's more like a glorious, lovely buffet of life-giving food and sustenance. How do you do that? Well, that's what this series is going to help us with. And and we've got memory verses, 12 key verses we hope you're going to memorize as we go throughout this series. We're even so excited about it, we've put a booklet together on it. It's at the back. You're welcome to get out of your seat, go pick one up. Um, there would have been a QR code, but if you're really geeky, um, uh, there would have been a QR code behind me, that is. You could go to our website, the latest blog, there's a link. You can get, download that, you can make your notes on it. Um, there's some amazing diagrams there that will really help you get to grips with where are we going with this. The first of these 12 verses, then, is John chapter 1, verse 1. And we're doing the first, even though it's at the start of the New Testament, because John is deliberately referencing back. In the beginning, God. That's how Genesis chapter 1 begins, verse 1. And here John is saying, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God. In the beginning was the Word. 
He's deliberately doing that, taking us all the way, all the way back. You've got here the ultimate origin story, right? Forget Wolverine, forget Cruella, forget Batman Begins, all that stuff. Here you have it. What was there before creation? What was the world like? What, what, what was there? What was creation? What was in existence? Was it good? Was it lovely? Was it a person, a being? What were they, what were they like? Here we have the answer. What is the foundation of reality itself? And that really takes us to the person of Jesus. That's what John is saying. He's there right at the beginning. It's Jesus. Oh, we've got slides. Fantastic. Hallelujah. Well done. Well done. Fantastic. Good job, Wendy, Mike, back there, team. (laughs) We appreciate that. I've totally lost where I was now. The beginning, the backstop to all reality. It's about the person of Jesus. They say there are four people who've had the most influence on the world. Buddha, Muhammad, Karl Marx, and Jesus. Only Jesus claims to be God of them. And so really, if you want to have a worldview that makes any sense of life, you've got to decide, was he right, was he wrong? Was he God, was he not God? In order to form the way that you're going to live, to, to make sense, to have meaning, purpose, and, and a sense of reality, and all, all of that, you, you've, got to, you've got to essentially do that. And John's gospel is the key place to help us, to help you answer this question about Jesus. Because he knew Jesus. He was close to Jesus. He lived with Jesus. He wrote about Jesus right at the end of the first century. This this biography that we're reading from, we've got archaeological evidence that that affirms and attests that. How old this document is that we're reading, we're studying today. He knew Jesus. He's described by the earliest Christians as the eagle. And if you look up, and the four Gospels each have an animal associated with them. For John, it was the eagle. Why? Because they believed that the eagle was the bird that could fly and look directly into the sun without being blinded. And John is the disciple who could look directly into the glory of the S-O-N sun. And not be blinded and reveal what he's like to us. And this is what he does in this verse. And he does it three parts. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. So we're going to look at it in three points. The first of those points you've had a little sneaky preview of already. It's the reason for life. The reason for life. In the beginning was the word. The Word. The Word is another way of describing Jesus. John's really clear about that. Read the rest of the chapter. It's all about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. And the Greek word that he uses for word there is this word logos. It's a very significant word. It Very early on in the Western world became a technical term of philosophy. And there was a Greek man in about 500 BC, he's called Heraclitus, who would use this word logos to describe a, a principle of order and knowledge. And that sort of took off so that this idea of logos was basically the mind or the code, um, the, the reason behind everything, the answers, the sense of purpose in the universe. That's what this logos essentially was. It's why there is 
order and not chaos, because there's logos. It's why you're always looking for something and you say that there must be a reason for this happening. That's because of the logos that's there. Or that something isn't fulfilling its potential well because it's not operating in accordance with its logos, its reason for existence. That's just what this idea of logos is about. Let me illustrate it for you with roller skates. My four-year-old son likes to put on his sister's roller skates, but not on his feet. He likes to put them uh, on his hands, and he gets down. If you've seen kind of the sequel to The Wizard of Oz, you kind of know what I'm talking about. But anyway, um, he puts them on his hands like this and tries to chase around like that. It doesn't work. He's phenomenally slow at doing that. He can't catch his sister. It's really uncomfortable. It gives a moment of sort of hilarity and fun, but it doesn't last. Now, if I was doing that, it's going to hurt my back. It's uncomfortable. Why? Because the roller skates are not being used in accordance with their logos. They're not, they're not fulfilling their, their potential, what they're designed for. This sense of logos is out there, it's real, and everyone is searching for it. Reaching to try and grasp it, to seek it, to make, make sense of it in some way. Let me illustrate that with a quote from a man called Leonard Bernstein. He's a, he's a very significant composer. And he's not a believer, by the way, but he's still reaching for it, trying to grasp hold of this. And he was trying to explain, why is Beethoven the greatest composer in the world? The goat, if you like the greatest of all time. And this is what he says. Our boy has the real goods, the stuff from heaven, from heaven. The power to make you feel at the finish. Something is right in the world. There's something that checks throughout, that follows its own law of consist consistently. Something we can trust that will never let us down. He's describing the logos without even realizing it. Every human being is designed to search for the Logos. Now, people do this, I think, today typically in two ways. And they look for it horizontally on the outside, and then they look in and down to try and find the Logos. Now, there's two coming-of-age, you guessed it, films that help to illustrate this um, that I've recently watched. The first of those is called Lady Bird. Um, Lady Bird. And this is a coming-of-age film about a 17-year-old girl. She's actually called Christine McPherson. But she so wants to reject any external controls upon her that no one's going to define me. How dare they? I define myself. I look inside. Do you see? Not outside. I'm not going to conform at all. So she rejects her parents' name for her. She's called Lady Bird, not Christine. And she just wants to get out of her parents' home. She wants to get out of her Catholic school. She wants to get out of her boring hometown to go into the big city where there's culture, to do a liberal arts course and all that kind of stuff. And on her journey there, she starts to unravel a little bit. She starts to see the value of these external things like family and hometown and, and roots and culture. So when she actually gets there, she instead of introducing herself as, hey, I'm Ladybird, aren't I cool? She's reached a point where she's saying, actually, I'm Christine. Hi. Nice to meet you. You see the direction that she's moving in. The film Eighth Grade goes in the opposite direction. It's a must-watch parenting film, by the way. 
rather dis- disconcerting as well. But she, she, she's, a, she's a sort of young teenager, middle-aged schooler in America called Kayla, and she's desperate to impress. She's desperate to be seen as being cool, to fit in, to be liked by everybody. And she'll go to some quite extraordinary, painful lengths, recording herself on YouTube, trying to create her own video channel, all this sort of stuff, and make herself look impressive and dress and and hang out with certain people. It's just, oh, it's utterly painful to watch the lengths that she'll go to. And eventually she talks to her dad and has a bit of a moment of breakthrough. And she realizes... I don't need to conform to all of their definition of cool. I can just look inside myself and be the best version of who I am. And I can define what's cool. And I can live out my cool. And then I'll be happy. That's how the film finishes. Very similar to the popular poem called Invictus. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You could add here... I am the author of my storyline, of my story. But what about this? What if you're not a very good writer? What if you have a season where you get writer's block? What if you don't have the life experience to develop some of the characters, maybe your own character, very well? What if your story ends up being as bad as ballistics? Have you thought about that? You see, Kayla is absolutely right to reject external pressure to conform, which is ungodly, which is worldly. That's absolutely right. But she is wrong to conclude that she could write her own story without being utterly crushed of the pressure of having to do that. How could she know that her story is ever going to be good enough? How could she know that her story is actually true or real or significant? How could she know that she isn't missing the potential of what what might be for her in her life? She would be forever second-guessing what she's doing. An awful place to be, living in such doubt and uncertainty. Now, there is some logos outside that we can find. God created the world. And there is a logos inside because we're made in his image. But we need a guide to make sense of it. So we shouldn't first be looking out or looking in, but looking up to the author of all reality, to the divine logos, to the reason for life. Because he has good plans and good purposes for every single person that he's made. Because he loves his creation. And you can trust him. You can trust him not least because of the second meaning of the word logos. You see, our God is not sort of a bit like De Beers' diamond business at least historically, don't want to get sued here, but they kind of had a monopoly on diamonds. Basically, they bought up all of the diamonds so that they could hoard them and control the price of diamonds. So you would pay a lot for them, even they had, they had absolutely tons of the stuff. If they were just going to hoard it to exploit you. I suppose, in theory, God could do that with his logos, with his knowledge, with his understanding, with all the answers he had for the way things should work and operate best. He could just keep it, ha ha, you human beings, I'm going to make you suffer. I know all the answers, but you're not going to know any. 
No, because the word logos also means word. That's why it's interpreted, translated word. Disclosure, communication, revelation, unveiling. And that's the heart of God, isn't it? See it in the incarnation. God comes in the flesh. Jesus himself is the exact, he's the the image of the invisible God. He is the way, the truth, and the life in the flesh. This great disclosure. He's the divine logos. There, living and breathing, walking amongst us, being described by John here. You can touch him. That is the logos. It's there. It makes sense. The answer's alive before us. Wow. That's the person of Jesus. This means that God is for you. He's got good plans and purposes for you. If you'll humbly align yourself to follow them. Let me put all of this another way. Imagine that I am the author of a great poem. For some of you, that's really hard, but you've got, to, you've got to do that just for a moment. Imagine I'm the author of a great poem, and I'm, I am walking in as the author into a room of students, very opinionated students, like quite a few are these days, um, <laughs> arguing that they've got the interpretation of this poem, this verse, this line. This is what it means. I'm absolutely convinced it means this. And another one's like, no, it means this. It's, th- it's this. That's what it means. Though another one's like, no, 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 you've got that wrong. It means this. And then I walk in, I'm the author, and I say... You're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Well, you're all a little bit right, but you're all really wrong. This is what it means. Case closed. End of conversation. Impossible to answer back. I'm the author. I know what I wrote and why I wrote it. How much more so with God? About love. Sex. How you use your body. Money, power, relationships. Because he's your author. He wrote you into existence. And the scriptures are basically him walking into the room saying, this is what I think. This is the way it is. God is the reason for life. Do you know his purposes for your life? And are you willing to align your life to say, yes, I'll embrace those purposes? Or are you going to fight against God's will and you're going to put your hand in the roller skates, (laughs) so to speak? (laughs) No, 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 I'm going to live it this way. I'm going to do that. I'm going to write my own story. That's the first point. The second point is the community of love. The community of love. Anybody need a little bit more joy in their life right now? Anyone want to own that? A few smiles, a few hands going up. Yeah, yeah me too. Me too. Um, it comes in this verse. In the meaning was a word. And now he's saying, and the word was with God. The word with is the key word. Tomorrow is Valentine's Day. Andy already mentioned that. I still kind of hate Valentine's Day a little bit. Even though I'm married. Which is kind of strange and awkward. I did buy a card and I will 
do the stuff, you know. But I remember what it was like to be single on Valentine's Day. And it felt like the whole culture was mocking you. Because you didn't have someone to spend it with who, who, who would love you. No life partner. Oh, aren't you a failure? Everyone else buying chocolates and this and roses and all that kind of stuff. And here am I on my own watching a film or doing something like that. You know, it's like, and you can feel like that. I bet there's people in the room watching online and, and you feel like that, even though you're a Christian. I want to tell you that that is utter rubbish. It's condemnation from the pit of hell. Because, and I'm trying to say this without it sounding trite, Jesus is your Valentine. That's not just like some silly comment, <laughs> that lovey-dovey, like a Hallmark card. No, 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 that, that, that's, that's probably the richest truth that you could ever hear. Valentine's Day, St. Valentine's uh, was a, a Christian martyr who was killed because he would not renounce his faith. He would not renounce his love for God. And so he was killed under uh, Roman Emperor Claudius. And it's that little expression of love that is a, a demonstration, is now working of this greater love that God has for those who love him and those who respond to his love. It's, it's, that, that's just a tiny taste of what, that's what St. Valentine's Day is about. And it's about God. God is the, it's the signpost to the awesome love of the universe that is God. So much better. That you can be with God, even if you're with no one else. Doesn't matter, I'm with God. What is this? How do we unpack the word with? Well, we go down to verse 18. And in verse 18, um, John describes what it means. Jesus was with the Father for all eternity, who is at the Father's side. Now, that's not a great literal translation of the exact meaning of that phrase. To stop probably from young boys sniggering, and I sure, I'm sure I would have been one. The actual phrase is that Jesus was eternally in the bosom of the Father. Bosom. Awkward word. But it's about intimacy, nearness, closeness, acceptance, embrace. Now here's a question you've probably never been asked before. Who right now gets to be in your bosom? Or man boobs. Um, for, for me right now, it would be my, be my, be my wife um, and my kids. But as my kids get older, they're going to grow up at some point. It may not be appropriate for them. If they, go, if they do get married, it's probably not appropriate for them. This is, a, this is an exclusive, special place here right now. If you're a church member, no, you're not welcome. I'm sorry. It's exclusive. You can't have this place. It's, 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 it's not, you're not all welcome here, right? It would be, be weird if you, if, you, if you thought that, by the way. But Jesus... He has to be a bosom of the Father, this exclusive place of intimacy and nearness and closeness. And he's been there for all eternity, past. Now, of course, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they don't have physical bodies in that sense. It's picture language for us. It's more like that their souls are entwined within each other as an expression of, of love. And of course, what we have here is the theology of the Trinity, that God is one being but three persons. As humans, we are one being and one person. But God is different. 
He is one being and three persons, which means he's not been a monad on his own for all eternity past, as is what is described for other false gods that are out there. This is the best picture that I can come up with. It's a bit crude of what they're like. I don't know if I can still do this. Yeah, I think it's working. They pretend to have love, but they're on their own. And therefore, they can't love. Unlike our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, forever loving one another. And then increasing and expanding and reciprocating love flowing from one to another. This is the circle, the community of ultimate glorious love. And it's out of the overflow of that love that they, they wanted to create, to pour, to have more vessels to pour their love into. And that's, that's why we exist. That, that's the heart of God. That's the essence. That's the foundation of all reality. It's not that we came out of nothing. We were created by a being of infinite and awesome love. It's not just impersonal forces that are out there. Love isn't just some chemical reaction. The foundation of reality is the God who is love. And it's an invitation to personal relationship with him, to experience this love. And that's, that's what we're being invited up into. God sort of says, really, come up into the fellowship of the Trinity. Come up and experience the circle of love, the ultimate community of love. And that's what we get with John, the disciple who Jesus loved. At the Last Supper, did you ever read that story? Did you ever notice where John's head was resting on the bosom of Jesus. John was in the bosom of Jesus, listening to the heartbeat of God for himself, for humanity, for the world. That's really the picture of discipleship. That's, that's really actually the description of fundamentally what it means to be a Christian. To be in the bosom of the Father with love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. So my question to you is, where is your resting these days? On whose bosom, if you like? The Lord's? Or is it some other lesser thing? Some adulterous kind of woman, figuratively, that you're going to, but doesn't satisfy? Are you abiding? Are you enjoying and experiencing and spending time with the one and listening to his heartbeat of love for you? The love that can't be broken. The love that nothing has the power in this world to separate you from. A love that says, I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. Is today a moment for you to say, gosh, I need to, I need to rest my head on his bosom again. That's the second point. The last point is God of light. God of light. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, 
and the word was God. And then we get a further description, and he was the light of men. I think there are moments in life where we feel stuck, don't we? Perhaps you feel stuck. You're in this room right now. You're watching online. You, you feel stuck with life. It happens to all of us. You just feel like, I'm trying certain things. I'm going round and it's not working. Negative thought patterns, bad behavior, persistent temptations, sinful ways of living and operating. I just keep going round the cycle and it just doesn't. I never seem to break free from it. I just don't seem to be making any progress in, in life. Right? I, I think there's a lot of us who sometimes have these moments in life where we just feel really stuck. And so you might turn some self-help book here, there, or you're like, I'm just going to try really harder. I'm going to turn over a new leaf and I'm going to go again. But it, it doesn't really work, does it? But here's the good news. The God of life doesn't offer new leaves. He offers you a new root. The God of light, he's not, he's not interested in making human horses be able to, come on, jump higher. You can jump a little bit higher. He wants to give you wings so you can fly. He's not about making people better. He's about creating new creations and transformation. Go on and read John's gospel and you'll get to John chapter 3. And there he's talking to Nicodemus, this great Jewish rabbi, keeper of the law. And he doesn't say to him, Nicodemus, just try harder at obeying. No, no, no. He says you need to be born again. You need a new life. You need a new power. You need a new operating system inside you. And this is the way of Jesus all the way along. Right now I'm reading John chapter 5. Jesus is with the man at the pool of Bethesda. And he's been lame. He's crippled. He's an invalid like that for 38 years. And Jesus says to him, do you you want to get well? Do you want to be healed? And the man replies, I'd love to. Basically, it's my paraphrase. I'd love to, but I can't get water when it bubbles up in that moment when people could get healed. I can't get there fast enough. Somebody, There's no one to help me. Somebody always gets there ahead of me. It's just not going to work. Jesus, maybe you could help me get to the water fast enough. Maybe you could move me so that I'm right at the water's edge. Maybe you could invite some other people to be with me all the time so that they could carry me into the water in that moment. Jesus does none of that. He's not interested in any of those human solutions. Jesus simply speaks and he says, pick up your mat and walk. Boom. The man does it and after 38 years, he walks. That's the way of Christ. We're in darkness. We were dead. We're like a vegetable spiritually. Unable to sense spiritual stimuli. That's, that's as much difference from a person who is kind of physically alive but spiritually dead. You know, they're no different from an avocado, spiritually speaking. Karma doesn't really do much. We were, we were dead. We were in darkness. Like Lazarus, dead in the darkness of that tomb. And Jesus stood outside and he spoke. And he said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came back from the dead and he walked out of that grave. How is that possible? Because Jesus is the Logos and his word has power, his word has life, his word has light that overcomes the darkness and the darkness cannot comprehend it, cannot, cannot resist the power of his word. And John is at pains to make it absolutely and abundantly clear that Jesus has this power because he's God. 
Jesus is God. That's the fundamental point that John wants to make in this introduction. And then he said, I'm going to show it to you in his miracles. Only Jesus, only God could do these miracles. And his wisdom, only God could, could teach with such authority and power and insight about the world and about you and your life and, and know your heart like that. Only God can forgive sins. These sins weren't committed directly against Jesus and his human life on us. He's forgiving sins that are committed against God. He is God and he's God, he's God. The amazing C.S. Lewis came to that conclusion. He was an atheist. And in his early 30s, he encountered the truth about Jesus. And he wrote this about him. He said, a man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or some worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. It's possible to believe that Jesus is God, but to behave as if he's just a good moral teacher, even for Christians. You know, it's just some other social media influencer can give it or take it. I'm following him on YouTube and all these other things. He's just like the religious Joe Wicks, you know. I follow his recipes, his exercise plans. If I, I, maybe I'll do it today. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll amend the recipe to make it a little bit of what I like. <laughs> you can't do that with Jesus. <laughs> you shouldn't do that with Jesus. He is God. He's the Alpha, the Omega. He spoke the world into existence. He is the true light. The first act of creation. Let there be light. That's Jesus. He brings order out of chaos. Light that brings hope, warmth, truth, meaning, revelation and understanding to existence. He is that, that force, that being. And he's available to you. He says, I can put my light inside you. And that light will transform all the darkness within. And through me, will start to destroy the darkness out. Devilish deceptions and, and evil temptations, all of that. This light that comes alive in you, it means you can really change. It gives you the power to, to, to overcome all that you might be struggling with and stuck with in your life. When this light isn't simply outside you, inside you. Wow. That's the ultimate invitation, isn't it? And this transformation happens through these three points I've been talking about coming together. God is saying to you, if you've got ears to hear, number one, I am the reason for life. I am for you. I have good purposes for you will you line up with them number two 
He says, I am the community of love. I can be with you. You need never be alone. Will you rest your head on my bosom and abide with me? And then he says, number three, I am the God of light. I can be in you. And I can bring change that is so glorious from the inside out. If we understand these truths as Christians, we need never worry again. (laughs) Amazing. God for me. God with me. God in me. That's God's heart for every human being. Why on earth then would you continue to write your own second-rate story? Why wouldn't you want to come in and live in the ultimate story? And you can do that today. If you've never done that before, I would encourage you now, humble yourself. Tell God you're sorry. Tell him you don't want to live your own less good story, but you want to live in his But for all of us, it's a moment to be renewed and saying, I want to live for your story. I want to see it more clearly. I want to understand my purpose that bit more, with that bit greater clarity and understanding that I could really serve you. And if we do that, oh, wow. Wow. We'll make such a holy, happy noise in this place. People will come. What's going on in this church, Westminster Chapel? It doesn't make sense. Lives are being changed. People are being transformed. This is incredible. They, they got answers that, 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 that no one else has. They're, they're seeing this, this, this amazing progress of, in their lives. They're breaking through. They're overcoming all sorts of behaviors. They're being transformed and changed. What is the secret of all of this? It's God. It's God. So let's, let's, let's get connected. Let's get saved. Let's get baptized. Let's get giving. Let's get serving. Let's get belonging. Let's get becoming. Let's get building this church with God for his glory. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. And the word was God. Let's take a moment to pray before we worship. Lord, we thank you so much. We thank you that you never left us alone. And that you come to give us meaning, you come to give us purpose, you give, accept us in spite of our sins. You give us everything through faith. We don't have to earn anything, we don't have to work hard, we don't have to strive. It's not about being good enough. Lord, we thank you that you're not interested in just trying to make us that little bit better as people, Lord. But you want us to be whole new creations, beings of light. Thank you that you've called us out of darkness into your glorious light, Lord. And pray, we pray, fill every heart with purpose. Help them to know the logos for their existence right now. Lord God, let every person experience the fellowship of the Trinity, being brought up into the community of foundational and fundamental love that would give them security and a sense of safety. Lord God, and let them be changed from one degree of glory to another as they behold you, the God of glory, the God of light. Come, God of light, we pray. Fill this place with your presence. Stir us to worship you, to praise you, to adore you, to scream and shout our thanksgiving for you. 
For once we were an avocado, but now we are alive and have an awesome future ahead of us. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.